0: Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon.
1: Today's reading comes from Micah 6, 1 through 8. Hear what the Lord says, rise, rise. Plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the controversy of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a controversy with his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? In what have I weary you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt, and redeemed you from the house of slavery. I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember now what King Balak of Moab devised, and what Balaam son of Beor, answered him, and what happened with the Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord, and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please take a moment for silent reflection. We continue centering ourselves through a prayer that's connected to our breath. So it's prayed silently. On the inhale, we pray, gracious God. And on the exhale, we pray, lead us by your spirit. So let's take a few moments to pray together.
0: Gracious God, lead us by your Spirit. We come to this moment from a variety of perspectives and experiences. Some of us, joyful, hopeful, anticipating what you might say or do in our lives. Others of us, fearful, cynical, skeptical, angry, or depressed, or addicted. We come believing and unbelieving. Some of us remembering a time when we used to believe these things and you seemed so close, and now you seem a million miles away, and we're wondering, what happened to you? Or what happened to us? However we find ourselves in this very moment, Help us to see that you know us in all our beauty and our brokenness, in our complexity and our contradictions. And your response is to move toward us and give yourself to us in sacrificial, self-giving love in the person and work of your Son, Jesus Christ. And so now we pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would open our eyes to your grace and our minds to your truth, our hearts to your love, And our lives to your renewal. And that you'd send us out to be your very agents of that renewal wherever we go. We pray these things for our good and for your glory. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, that was a heavy scripture we just heard. And with your permission, I'm going to keep it in the deep end for just a moment. Starting in the depth of where we are. Meaning... I've been saying things for 20 years, whether it was the University of San Diego as a minister with InterVarsity, or University of San Francisco as I started the ministry there, or the Mission District of San Francisco where I started a ministry there, or here where we're beginning this church, it doesn't seem like in society by and by people are becoming more and more good. Which is intriguing because the great secular humanist myth or assumption or expectation of the last half century was the more we develop technology, the better people we will become. The more we sophisticate ourselves with more knowledge and experience, the more ethical we will become. But instead what's happened is the more technological we've become, we've just sophisticated our ability to hurt one another. Nuclear power, what a discovery. It can power a city or it can level a city. And so today, as I turned on my news feed, you read more about a powerful country invading a weaker country, Russia, continuing the campaign against Ukraine. You read about in our own governmental system, in multiple, you know, of the three branches of government, you can't find one where you can say gold stars all around. We have a congressperson right now who has openly been caught lying about everything he's accomplished to get to his office and it's caught and no one's doing anything about it. We have a judicial branch where there has been leaked information and there's an investigation into the judges of justice for our country and everybody's stepping back, crossing their arms and saying nothing. And so nobody trusts anybody. We had two mass Shootings in California, and our friend David reminded me at Community Group, we had a mass stabbing in San Diego last week. And then there's Tyree Nichols, an unarmed man beaten to death by five police officers in custody in Memphis, Tennessee. And then there's like just digital cruelty. As as a father of two teenagers, I see this over people's shoulders as a minister of teenagers in this congregation and grown ups. The ability to communicate rather anonymously through social media now pulls the fangs and the claws out more than ever because you can hurt somebody and you don't even have to look them in the face as they cry through tears at the devastation that you've brought to their life. But I don't have to tell you this, you know this. But it's not just the evil out there, there's also the darkness that's in here. See, the line between good and evil is not drawn between individual people or countries or political parties, it's drawn through the human heart. Each of us, if we wanted to be vulnerable enough and it was appropriate, could tell stories this week of how you, how you were a very good person, and you could tell stories about how you were not a very good person. So the question is, what do you do with the evil out there? And what do you do with the contradictions and the brokenness in here? What's the solution? How do you deal with it? By the way, the average person in North America will say, in terms of ethics, will say something like, who are you to tell me what's right and wrong? Nobody has the monopoly or the copyright on ethics, on right and wrong. You are nobody to tell me. We all figure that out for ourselves. You have to decide what's right in your own heart. And then an atrocity like the murder of Tyree Nichols happens, and the entire country said, that's wrong because it's in our bones. The question is, how do you tap into what's right and what's wrong, and then how do you get on that track to follow it? And that's what this passage is talking about today. John Collins, in his book, The Intro to the Hebrew Bible, says, Micah chapter six, verse eight, that last part, he has told you, O mortal, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. John Collins calls that biblical ethics in a nutshell. But how do you access it? How does that move from just like a motivational poster on the wall at the office to an actual operating system for your life? And so let's look at it like this. The God of ethics, the good question, two bad answers, and the right answer. First, if you're going to talk about the God of ethics, you, have to st- you always have to consider the source. You should do this with your news feeds also. You have to consider the source. Who's talking? Do they have authority? Do they know what they're talking about? Are they trustworthy? And this is where it begins. With the human heart showing that we always tend to put God on trial. Essentially, the people that Micah the prophet is addressing are putting God on trial and asking the question we ask what have you done for me lately? Where are you? And they begin taking matters into their own hands, often with disastrous results. This is where the original audience of Micah would have stood. This is written in the 8th century B.C. Let that sink in for a second. Not the 8th century A.D., which would have been 1,100 years ago, but the eighth century BC, 1,600 years before that. And in 2,700 years, the human heart has not changed much. And the context is, Israel is being threatened by Assyria, so there's this external threat and. They're crushing the poor in their midst and turning on one another. I'll give you a couple samples. Here's Micah chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. Alas for those who devise wickedness and evil deeds on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it's in their power. They covet fields and seize them, houses and they take them away. They oppress people and their inheritance. He's saying, you're dreaming of evil, And when you wake up, you put the plan into action. goes on, chapter 3, verse 5. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry, peace, when they have something to eat, but declare war on those who put nothing into their mouths. So he's saying, in your strength, you're crushing people. In your commerce, you're taking advantage of people. And in your religious practices, you're exploiting people. The whole thing's gone moldy. It's rotten to the core. And God sees them and calls them out and pursues them. Like a loving parent. As the father of three children and someone who ministers to many people who have kids in their lives... I can attest that it takes perseverance to go after a wayward child. A child rebels and the caregiver says, I will go after them. Even if they're kicking and screaming, even if they're openly rebelling, even if they're coming at me with their words and their actions, I will not give up on this child. I will pursue them. Even if it would be easier to write them off to let them go, to say, have it your way. Especially if you have many kids and you say, it's just one, I'm gonna focus on these other kids. Imagine God saying, I have millions of children, I'm just gonna focus on them. No, God goes after you specifically in love. It would be much, can you see, it would be much easier for God to give up on them at this point, but he doesn't. Let that melt your heart, that's the character of God Never giving up on you. And so God challenges them in verse 1. Hear what the Lord says. Rise. Plead your case before the mountain. So that word here is the Hebrew word shema, which is not just hear. It means listen and do. It's heed. I'm about to lay something down that is going to require a response. Plead your case. This is a trial. God says, you want to put me on trial? Let's put you on trial for a moment. And who are the witnesses of this trial? The mountains and the foundations of the earth. They're going nowhere. Now, do you start to kind of let your perspective zoom out here and let it take you up, up to the heights of who you're dealing with when you're dealing with God? And then in verse 3. Oh, my people. This is a God who is transcendent, calling the witness of the mountains and the foundations of the earth. This is a God who is personal. And when God looks at you, he says, my people. This is not a faraway, angry, bearded man in the sky throwing thunderbolts in wrath, but rather a loving parent who is grieved because his kids have gone so wrong. And God questions them. What have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Bring your complaint. Let's hear it. And the answer is nothing. God had provided for them, led them, protected them, guided them, and set them free. You would think the response would be gratitude and obedience. One of my favorite scenes in the movie, The Count of Monte Cristo, is when the star, The Count of Monte Cristo, rescues Jatara, the pirate, and he saves him from certain death. And the pirate turns and says, from now on, I am your man. I will do anything for you. And as the audience, you watch and you say, that's a a right response. You owe him everything. God is saying, how do you not owe me everything? And how do you not see this? Instead, these people continue to be ungrateful and wandering, developing what I call spiritual amnesia, just forgetting the goodness of the God that cares for them. These are the echoes of the first lie told in the Bible by Satan or the serpent or the devil or however you would like to refer to it in Genesis chapter 3 after God has created every good thing in the garden and blessed it and said it is good and created human beings in God's image and likeness and blessed them and said it's very good and said you can have anything you want just don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and here comes the adversary the deceiver the liar the father of lies did God really say you can't eat of any of the trees of the garden? What a stingy God. The answer is no. That's not what God said. God said you can eat of any tree in the garden except for one, which is very different than you can't eat of any of the trees in the garden. So the seed is sown that you can't trust God. God's not going to take care of you. You need to take matters into your own hands. And we've been taking matters into our own hands ever since, leading to a cycle and a spiral of whether it's internal violence or external whether it's with our actions or with our words or at least our thoughts. Nothing much has changed in the human heart. And still, God pursues them. God says, I will never give up on you. This is what's happening in verses four and five. Let's unpack these rather rapidly. Each of them could be a PhD dissertation. But God says, if you don't remember what I've done for you, let me just remind you real quick. Verse four, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of of slavery. That's pretty good. You were impoverished and crushed and without hope. You were making bricks without straw for Pharaoh. You were having members of your family killed in front of you, and I rescued you. I set you free. Verse 5 or continuing in that verse. And I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam Moses, the prophet who would lead the people out of slavery through the wilderness toward the promised land. Aaron, Moses' big brother who would be the speaker of that great movement. Miriam, Moses' sister who was crafty and thoughtful and had high design as she designed a way to save baby Moses' life and have him placed into the Nile River to be received by Pharaoh's daughter and raised as Pharaoh's own. Okay, I started heavy. I have a quick dad joke, pastor joke about about Miriam and Pharaoh. Um, Who was the best, who was the most successful female investor in the Old Testament? Pharaoh's daughter, because she went to the Nile and drew out a little profit. All right, thanks. All right, you like that one? All right. Who was the most successful um, male investor in the Old Testament? Noah with the ark, because everybody else was liquidating and he was floating his stock. All right, that's what I got. That's what you get from me. Now back to this. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, there's plenty more. Please uh, tip your, don't forget to tip your waiter and try the veal. <clears throat> I have not pencil there, should I tell these jokes or not? I think I just, <laughs> I think I'm just going to erase those for whenever we come around again here. Verse 5. This is one that is kind of more than meets the eye. Oh, my people, remember now what King Balak of Moab devised and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him. What's going on there? This is where King Balak of Moab heard that Balaam, uh, who was this kind of seer and prophet in his own right, had this spiritual power, this ability to bless people and curse people, and it seemed like whether they put a blessing or a curse on people, God actually listened and it came to fruition. So Balak, who's concerned about Israel and their power, goes to Balaam and commissions him, pays him, gets him on his roster to curse Israel. This is one of the funniest scenes in the Old Testament because Balaam is going toward doing this on his donkey when his donkey speaks to him. Um, One friend after I was preaching said that wasn't the only time God spoke through an ass. But anyways, and instead of cursing Israel, he blessed him. So what's happening there is God saying, I have rescued you. I've given you shepherds. I have turned your curses into blessings. And don't forget what happened from she to Gilgal. This is the actual story of coming into the promised land. She-Team was Joshua's um, base on the east of the Jordan River, the last place they camped before they crossed the Jordan River into the promised land. Gilgal was the first place where they camped. I've brought you to the promised land. What's God saying? In the midst of your spiritual amnesia, when you have forgotten that I am good toward you, when you're questioning my very character, when you're asking, what have you done for me lately? Just take a moment and reflect and remember. I'm in this for you. Look at my track record. Why don't we take a moment right now? Just reflect and remember. Where has God come through for you? How has God rescued you? Where has God provided for you? Where has God guided you and loved you? Part of my advice in pastoral counseling as you're thinking of these things is that when you come to a moment in your life and you wonder, is God going to show up? Does God care? Is God going to provide? Just pause and remember the ways God has cared for you in the past, and then you begin to reason with yourself. You actually use your rationale. You preach the gospel to yourself, and you say, the same God that cared for me then will see me through this. So how do you respond? This is where the question comes. That was a long first point. These ones go quickly. So here comes the question then. Verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow my face before God on high? With what shall I come before the Lord? The imagery of coming before the Lord, to stand before God face-to-face, is the imagery of having a relationship. In Hebrew, the word for face-to-face, your face is panim, And oftentimes, the people ask for God to show me your face. Or when God does show God's face, they say, please hide me because it's just too much light, too much power, woe is me. I've seen the face of God and lived. But this person's saying, how do I stand before this God and see God's face? How can I, a mere mortal, who's beautiful and broken, who has tremendous capacity for beauty and creativity and love and delight, and tremendous capacity for violence and wrath and selfishness come before a God like this? The gap is too great. How can I come into God's presence? How can I know God? How do you answer that question? Everybody in this room answers that question one way or the other, whether you're aware of it or not. How can you get to know the transcendent God? Now, we're offered two wrong answers here. In verse six, we see, well, how do I do this? Do I come before God with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? In other words, everybody's got a price, right? Everybody's got, what's the cost? I've got money. I have resources, how much do I give so I can be in the graces of this God? And it, it keeps escalating and accelerating. It starts with burnt offerings, and then a year-old calf would be a valuable calf. This is a very good piece of veal. And then thousands of rams, and then 10,000 rivers of oil. It's billions of dollars, billions of dollars. Everybody has a price. What's it going to take? God doesn't have a price and can't be bought. There's another place where God says, do you think that I really need your calves and your lambs and your oil? Do I not own the cattle on 10,000 hills? Are not all the forests and farmlands and hills mine? There is nothing you have that I need. The only thing that I want is you. I was talking to somebody this week about obeying God in a difficult situation. And I said, look, whatever you choose to do after this conversation, God is going to be fine. God will be God. But in God's grace, mercy, and love, God wants you to be connected to God. You can't buy God. The second one, and it, as this escalates even further, so hang in here with me, because it gets really, incredibly Dark, disgusting, difficult, choose your adjective. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Should I perform child sacrifice? That's what they're saying. And the Bible unequivocally answers the question, no. Because in a society where many other nations would practice uh, infanticide or child sacrifice, God says we do not do that. It goes even further once you get past that kind of visceral reaction because the first child bore everything for the family. Many societies to this day, but especially societies back then, and this one in particular, the firstborn would be the hope of the family, the future of the family. They didn't have a banking system. You couldn't get a last will and testament and set up a family trust and make sure your assets upon your death were divided equally among the members of your family. Your assets were not shekels or money or cryptocurrency. Your assets were the land and the animals. And if you had 10 kids and you were like a middle class or wealthy family and you divided it up 10 ways, the next generation has diluted wealth and your name vanishes from the earth. So they developed a process called primogeniture, you can Google that, but it's really the firstborn gets all the stuff. The firstborn carries the family name. The firstborn has the power. They should take care of their siblings, but the family ranch, the estate, the animals, the wealth, all of that goes to the firstborn. So this is not just, shall I separate myself from my beloved child, which includes that. It's, shall I cut off the legacy of my entire name? I think that's heightened to the extreme, just the question, how good of a person do I have to be to be accepted by God? I think many of us uh, have the idea that if, you know, I'm in general, I'm a good person. I try to do more good than I do bad, and God knows my heart, and at the end of the day, this is why God will accept me. And the answer to that, God says, that's not the way the world works. And to this person saying, Shall I give my firstborn son? Shall I bring the ultimate sacrifice? The answer is no. God says, Because I will. This is not about your wealth, your resources, your sacrifice, your ability to pull things together. This is not about your sacrifice, it's about mine. And generations later, in response to our wandering and not trusting and the violence we do to each other and the violence that we do to ourselves, God will indeed give his firstborn son, Jesus Christ, born into this world to take sin and death itself upon himself on the cross. Who on the cross, while being crucified by the culmination of political and religious hollowness, evil, violence, takes it all upon himself on the cross and recycles violence into forgiveness, saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And three days later in his resurrection shows that the last word on this world is not the brokenness of our lives or the violence of this world, but rather new life. New hope and resurrection which can never be snuffed out. As we remind each other during the season of Advent, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness will never overcome it. Which brings us to the right answer. God says, you can't buy me. I don't need your sacrifices. Remember, I rescued you. I gave you shepherds. On this side of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we'd say he not only gave Moses and Aaron and Miriam, but gave us Jesus Christ himself, the good shepherd. I turn your curses into blessings, as Paul will later write to the church in Rome, for all things will work together for good for those who put their faith and trust in Christ. And I'll bring you to the ultimate promised land, the kingdom of God which is not just waiting for you when you die on this earth, but is actually rushing forth to meet you right now. So what do you do? You remember, receive, and respond. I mean, really, that's what it means to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. The reason why that comes last is because otherwise I think we'd confuse it and get lost. If I do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with God, then God will love me and accept me and save me and rescue me. And it's not that. It's the other way. You have to flip it on its head. God has loved me, rescued me, cared for me, and saved me. Therefore, I want to love mercy. I want to walk humbly with my God. Do justice. Because God is just. That word is mishpat, which specifically in the Old Testament and New always favors four groups of people, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the poor. That's why we do know your neighbor. That's why we partner with our friends in Tijuana as a church. These aren't things we've invented. These are opportunities that we take hold of. Do justice because God is just. Love kindness. That word is also translated as mercy. It's one of the most pregnant with meaning Hebrew words I've ever heard. Chesed, which is a way of talking about God's faithful, steadfast, never giving up, never letting go kind of love. He's saying love that kind of love. Embody that kind of love toward one another. Embrace it. And walk humbly with your God. Walk humbly with your God. Some people hear walk, some people hear humbly, some people hear your. Walk humbly with your God. Now let's start with the your part. Someone said, this is great. This is like Old Testament, uh, Old Testament relativism. You walk humbly with your God, and I'll walk humbly with my God. This is actually on uh, one of the major buildings at Bucknell University, this part right here. And in a rather secular university, they have no problem with it because it's saying, you go ahead and do what's good for you, and I'll go ahead and do what's good for me, except that's completely missing the context that you just heard. God is not laying out the rescue, the care, the provision, the faithfulness, and then saying, with that being said, if you get a better offer, go ahead and pursue it. The your is not American post-Enlightenment individualistic your. The your is a personal, possessive, your God. I want relationship with you. This is what Doubting Thomas declared, which some people call the first declaration of the gospel, my Lord and my God. He's yours. What if you really believe that? What if tomorrow when you're getting ready for work, you look in the mirror and you say, the most important and true thing about me is God has said, I belong to God. God will never leave me or forsake me walk. Walk humbly. Walking connotes relationship. You often don't walk with people that you don't like, unless you're forced to. And even then, sometimes you get to like them along the way. But it connotes relationship. Walk a mile in someone's shoes. The idea is you get to know them better. During COVID, when we couldn't do anything outside outside of our pod, Florence's brother and, and her dad and I walked the Pacific Crest Trail through San Diego County. I've walked like 100 miles with these guys. I know them better now because I walked with them. God is saying, I want you to walk with me, and I want you to know me. You befriend and you love people when you walk with them, and you see the world through their eyes. One of my buddies, David Piscatelli from college, was in from Seattle this week. I said, what do you want to do? He said, I want to start at your house and have you walk me through your neighborhood. So we walked through the neighborhood. I brought him into this room, the sanctuary. Introduced him to friends who own the different businesses, to friends who live on the street who we know by name. And because we walked, he got to see my experience of this world. God is saying, I want you to understand me. I want you to know me. Walking involves both energy and intention. You never went for a walk by accident. But it also connotes progress and movement and its dynamic. God says, walk with me. By the way, if you overlay Jesus' great commandment, we'll close with this. They say, Jesus, what's the most important commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Is that not do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God? So, friends, what will that look like for you today? What will that look like for us as a community? Let's walk together as people who've been rescued, loved, forgiven. As people who are so secure in our own skin, we know that God would never give up on us, and therefore we don't give up on each other or on this neighborhood or on this city or on this world. Let's pray. Gracious God, we pray that that would be the tone of our lives. And now that you would press us to remember the ways you've rescued us, to respond with gratitude. And I pray now by this power of the Holy Spirit you would give each of us who are listening a specific invitation, an action step to take in response. As we enter this time of offertory and move toward your table, impress yourself upon us. Open us to your grace and send us out to be your very hands and feet of renewal in this world, we pray in your name.